1: I'm very well respected within comedy and also kind of looked at as um, sort of a mom to everyone. I'm everybody's mother, which is a nice thing too.
0: Hello and welcome to the 38th episode of Varvet International. I'm your host, Christoph Jumpf, and I'm recording this in Varvet's home in Vellingby, Sweden. But it was recorded a few weeks ago in Los Angeles, Varvet's sort of second city. Ladies and gentlemen,
1: Margaret Cho! Everybody. Welcome to Gotham Comedy Live. I have an Asian friend here that I bowed to. Is that your boyfriend? Your husband. Oh, he's handsome. <laughs> no, he's real handsome because you know, you know when you see that's really good, because you know when you see like, because you're really beautiful, beautiful Asian woman. And it seems like, you know, like whenever I see like a beautiful, beautiful Asian woman, she's always with the most busted face, broke down, white man. You know what what I'm saying? And I'm like, bitch, are your eyes that small?
0: Yes, today's guest is the fantastic stand-up comedian Margaret Cho, one of the funniest people in America or in the world. And she also has one of the longest resumes I've ever seen. And maybe that comes with the territory, as her career is almost 30 years long. And she's been in the top since, well, Forever, She's written a couple of books, been a fashion designer, she's done music, been in movies, starred in several TV series, among which will soon mention All-American Girl, but she also appeared in 30 Rock, playing Kim Jong-il. And there's tons of stand-up comedy with her out there, making her one of the not just funniest, but also most successful comedians in the US. And in a while I'll also kind of bluntly ask her about her sobriety That's in a half an hour or so But that has to do with the fact that she has been really open about her personal life She has talked earlier about struggling with eating disorders as well as drugs and alcohol And she also has been an advocate for gay rights And have talked about being bisexual and so forth So, you know, I like long interviews. This one is one of the shorter ones. We were a bit late and Margaret had something afterwards. So my time with her in her super cool Glendale villa was limited. That being said, here is the interview. Roll the tape, please. I'm sorry for being late.
1: Oh, I'm, I'm. I'm. You're not late, actually. You know, I find people from Sweden hate to be late, almost as much as German people hate to be late. I tend to think Swedish people punish themselves <laughs> for, for lateness. That's more do. internal. Yeah.
0: yeah, we hate ourselves. So you, so you in turn general. it
1: inward, and then it's it's very very dark.
0: How would you say that Koreans are with self hatred?
1: I don't know. I think I think we sort of. Are more xenophobic, which I think is the same kind of thing. So it's like you you like look at look sort of the push the hatred outward somehow. Maybe it's a self defense thing, but it is self hatred too. But uh, Koreans are usually just more drunk. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Actually, I think that's (laughs) that's like we're the most drunkest of Asians. Oh, you are. Yeah.
0: But so, how are you today?
1: I'm doing very well, thank you.
0: That's nice to hear. Yes. What have you been up to so far?
1: I spent the morning with uh, the LA Times doing a uh, sort of a, a video piece that is sort of a news documentary they're doing about white girls. Okay. So we're talking about race and, and how um, white people are affected by, by the racial conversation and, and how it's just a um, difficult place to be in. So just doing lots of heavy thinking.
0: And if you, the listeners wonder what with this sound, I have Lovisa here. She's my producer, and yes. you have
1: my publicist Ken.
0: Ken and yeah. my
1: dogs Gudrun.
0: Yes, Gudrun. And where, where where did you come up with these names?
1: Gudrun is a name that I always liked, <laughs> and I think a lot. There's a lot of Swedish people named Gudrun. Exactly, it's a beautiful name, and it's just one that I am attracted to. I think it's from the characters from the D.H. Lawrence novel Women in Love. One uh-huh. of them is named Gudrun and the other one is Ulrika. But uh, my other dog also has a, I think she, it's, it's not, it's, it's more Danish. Her name is Dagmar.
0: Yeah, but that's, that flies in Sweden as well. Oh, yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, it's very common. They're beautiful names. But Dagmar is named after an American actress from the 1950s. All right. Who was a sort of a burlesque sort of sensation and um, then Bronwyn is my uh, oldest dog who's in the kitchen because it's hot so she's not walking around right now
0: no she was really uh, the other ones were really like on their toes when we came here they're
1: but, excited yeah
0: but the old one sorry her name was Bronwyn Bronwyn yes what kind of name that's is a that?
1: Welsh name uh-huh, that's right. um, a Welsh name as my first dog that was her brother his name was Rafe which is also a Welsh name
0: alright oh, yeah okay and you are a dog person?
1: I am. I okay. am. I really love them. How come? I think because they're just very bonded to humans and they're very, I don't know, know—they—they they ha- I have a relationship with dogs they don't have with other animals. I love all animals, but dogs seem to have the capacity to really return that love, whereas other animals don't have that sort of domesticity. Um, I love cats too, but I'm allergic to them. So my only experience with sort of domesticated animals is dogs. Okay. Okay. I'm
0: thinking that if we are to sort of explore your, uh, you, I mean, you were born in 1968. Yes. You were born in San Francisco. Yes. Yes. What do I need to know about San Francisco to understand you?
1: San Francisco at that time was receiving a pretty big influx of immigrants from Korea. And so when my father came to America in the 60s, he just was part of this big wave of immigration. And there were some issues with his immigration. So he was deported. But when he returned, there was a real emphasis on making me as American as possible so that I would not speak Korean or would not have a Korean accent in anything I did. There was a need to make me as American as possible to sort of maybe combat that i idea that I might be less American. So I've always felt very American growing up. And my family owned a bookstore in the 70s and the 80s in San Francisco, which uh, was catering to the gay community. And so I grew up around a lot of gay people. And gay people were very politically progressive and tattooed and very influential. Also, like Armistead Maupin was part of my upbringing then, who was the author of Tales of the City, which is a big, very famous book about San Francisco and gay society in the 70s. So I grew up around a lot of gay culture and saw so many different changes within the community because in the 80s, AIDS happened, which was such a huge plague for the community. And so I watched the community really endure so much suffering. And then really only this year, really return with a real celebration with the legalization of gay marriage. And so You know, I guess I've seen a lot happen in gay history, and I'm proud of that too. So those are the things that sort of make me very San Franciscan.
0: How come your parents ended up owning a bookstore?
1: I think my family wanted to be more literary. My father is an author, and so he wanted to... Yeah,
0: he wrote like some kind of joke books. Yeah,
1: So he was very interested in in writing and still is very interested in writing. And so he wanted me to live a kind of a literary life and learn about art and culture from gay people because he felt that that was really the source of how you could really enjoy society is to, to enjoy it as a gay man would enjoy art and music and literature and everything. So that's my upbringing, really.
0: And you worked there.
1: Yes, I I grew up there and I worked there and enjoyed this really very rarefied look at gay society before it shifted, before AIDS came. Because in the 70s, when my parents first took over the store, the street that it was on, the Polk Street area, which was a very, very busy area, was just where all of these gays and lesbians were coming from all over the world to finally find acceptance. And so it was this incredibly exciting time. And then when AIDS took over everything, it was so traumatic and difficult. So I saw a community at its most vibrant, and most alive, and then the death of it, in a sense. So I witnessed a lot of it. So that's, you know, sad, but good. So I can see things in more of a historical context now, like how things have shifted.
0: Looking at your comedy, it's very essential to you that you sort of have a a Korean heritage or, yeah. Yes. And your father seems to be interested in humor as well, or?
1: Yes, yes, he is. Well, he's interested in all kinds of writing. And so I guess that's sort of me too. I'm definitely interested in all different kinds of writing, not just being a humorist, but also tackling some more difficult subjects. So in my shows, I talk about racism and I talk about sexism and homophobia in um, a way that sort of, could be more serious but then i try to make it funny you know i think comedy has a place in that conversation or all those conversations yes
0: of course by the way i have to say i i might have forgotten i'm very uh, honored and happy that you wanted to to have us
1: here. oh thank you thank you for coming i'm and, excited too it's great
0: and it's so kind of you to let us into your house it's very how should i say it feels uh, eclectic
1: yes <laughs> it's it's kind of a bit of everything you know i travel all over the world so i collect things and then also things that i have amassed in my work so a lot of gifts i have a lot of friends who are artists who have given me things so it's a nice collection of different kinds of art
0: i haven't seen someone with a blue roof and yeah it's purple walls before
1: yeah the blue is well this is an eating room all of the eating rooms which is this room in the so it's a dining room and there's sort of a smaller kitchen room the blue is actually an appetite suppressant
0: uh huh. It is, but it
1: encourages communication.
0: Yeah, it it is a suppressant. Okay, so you don't want to eat so much.
1: You don't want to eat so much, and then you want to talk more. So that's okay. what the point of that. But it hasn't really worked out.
0: I read somewhere, like one million years ago, that if food is blue, mm-hmm. it means don't eat it. Uh, yes, to us, like
1: yeah, it's an option that's poison. Exactly, or something. Yeah. So that's why I guess it's a it's an appetite suppressant.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You seem like you had a good time, like working in the bookstore. You come from a really like loving family, right?
1: Yes. 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 Very, very, very much so.
0: On the other hand, your adolescence, I mean, in school and so forth, wasn't so easy.
1: No, no, I had a hard time in school. I think I had some difficulty speaking. And so that was part of my problem is that I had this intense shyness with other children. And I don't know, exactly why that is, but I did. And so that was really tough for me growing up. And so I found safety with people who generally were older than me. And that's kind of why I left school pretty young, because I wanted to pursue doing stand-up comedy. I started stand-up comedy pretty early in my life as a teenager. So I was in a rush to grow up and not be a kid anymore.
0: Did you ever find confidence In school, or was that after?
1: Oh, it wasn't much till much after. I mean, I found a lot more confidence and I guess an excitement for a living. And I think maybe when I was much, much older, like a late teenager, early 20s, like it was not easy for me growing up. So I'm happy that I got to become an adult.
0: Because, I mean, you were truthfully bullied, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Why did people let that happen?
1: I don't think that we had those kinds of like, um, ideas. When I was growing up, we didn't have a kind of protective sort of a campaign such as like, it gets better, you know, the Dan Savage campaign to help gay kids in school. Remember that that it does get better as they get older. So we didn't have anything like that. I mean, when I was a kid, we didn't have really ways to talk about sexual molestation. We didn't have ways when I was like a little bit older to talk about date rape or rape at all, that there was this kind of idea that in my upbringing or my, my adolescence too, that young girls were very sexualized, that we didn't really have the same kinds of social awareness of how to protect children then that we do now. So I think I fell really victim to that. You know, that was a problem. And I think because of that, that made me very shy, very... It was difficult for me to talk to people, which is odd because now it's very easy for me to. So I think um, there's a lot of things that affected me that maybe I would have benefited from if I'd been born later.
0: Were you funny all along?
1: I don't know. I hope so. (laughs) I don't think so. I think I was thinking things. I was so silent. And then when I finally started to share my opinions with people when I was older and more confident that I finally was able to sort of realize that I could be funny.
0: Yeah. I know that you were sort of inspired by uh, Joan Rivers early on.
1: Yes, yes. She was a hugely important figure in my life and also my comedy. I just, I wanted to be like her and she was my friend later on and I really enjoyed that friendship. And so, you know, she was a very important force in my life.
0: Didn't I see a documentary about her that she documented her jokes, right?
1: Yes. Yes, she had them all in a cabinet or a file cabinet. Something like that. It's incredible. It's incredible.
0: Do you do that as well?
1: No, I don't have that same level of organization. I don't have anything like that. I mean, everything that I've been doing as a comedian has been documented in my comedy specials. I have quite a few of them. Yeah. So I have them there, but I don't have them in a file cabinet.
0: Do you keep documents of uh, ideas in in the computer and so forth? Yes,
1: I have that. And then I have a lot of things written down in journals and, you know, over the years. But most of it is like, just sort of resides in my memory. Like I think stand-up comedians have a lot of capacity for memory and remembering things exactly. So I have to sort of do them exactly to make the joke work. So I think it's just all in my head. I hope it is anyway.
0: I've been interviewing quite a lot of, Swedish comedians, and it seems like there are different schools in how developed a joke has to be when when they try it on stage yes. the first time. How how are you with that?
1: Well, usually I write jokes on stage. Like I have an idea, and then I'll take it and I'll try to expand on it on stage because then you you have to come up with something. You know, when you're sitting there and writing, you don't have that urgency of having to come up with something. But when you have to bring it onto like into performance right away then you're forced to invent very quickly and then your mind can do things that you don't expect it to so hopefully that's sort of worked it has worked but I, I just count on that to write jokes in particular
0: yeah it's been obviously been very successful
1: yeah i think so but i do have a writing life too where i sit down and i, I do write and and um, try to do different kinds of writing so there's that kind of a document as well
0: I also know back to your sort of upbringing, and I also know that you were thrown out of high school.
1: Well, a couple of different things. Well, I, I was not. I was thrown out of a school that uh, really you had to have really good grades to stay in. So I didn't really do anything bad. I just didn't go to class, which is actually really bad because it was a waste of resources. You know, so that 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 place could be given to a much more grateful and deserving student. So I was expelled from that school, and then I went to a school for the performing arts where I did fairly well, but then I didn't really feel like I didn't really want to be around other kids either. And I had teachers who were encouraging me. I had one teacher who would actually sign me up for comedy club shows, for open mics at comedy clubs, which was a really inappropriate thing, I think, now if I look back on it. But actually, I'm really grateful that it happened.
0: (laughs) Why was it inappropriate?
1: Well, you know, these shows were in bars and, you know, it was uh, not a school thing, you know, but it was definitely to enhance my creative life, which was what I was working working on in the School of the Arts that I was attending. But it was a little bit over, it sort of stepped over the line of what teachers are able to do with their students, especially for young kids, 15, 16, you know, that's kind of a little bit inappropriate, but really great.
0: So it was sort of illegal even?
1: I think so. Yeah. I think so. Because we, we weren't even supposed to be in the bar there because we were underage.
0: Is that teacher still around?
1: Yeah, yeah. She does a lot of different kinds of stuff. But it's great. It's actually really a wonderful thing.
0: Have you thanked her?
1: Yes. Yes. Yes, I
0: have. Okay, so you're sort of Facebook friends or something
1: like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, we're, we're actually friends in life. Okay. And so we, we talk, and she's very excited and, and happy for me, and i very proud of our accomplishments, so it's great.
0: Fantastic. Yeah. Not sort of going to college and so forth, because you didn't, right? I didn't, no, 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 no. There is a Swedish expression. I'm not sure that it translates, but it's academics complex, sort of, that you lack certain knowledge about stuff that you would learn if you would go to, for instance, college.
1: Yeah, that's absolutely right.
0: Is there a term for it?
1: There isn't really, just because I think we are so... I don't know, we're always from diverse backgrounds, people in entertainment, so there's like either a lot of education or none at all, and so you never know where people come from. But I definitely have a lack of certain elements into being a really smart person like you want to be fully well-rounded and and know about things that you would know about if you'd gone to school but I didn't have that so I always feel a little bit behind some of my very educated friends and some of my friends who are you know the dean of Harvard and the, the you know people who are living in academia I always feel sort of like inferior to them because they have lived their entire lives in school but maybe I know things that They didn't know because they were not there. Like I've learned from living in the world as a very young person without any kind of safety of an institution like a school.
0: Of course. So, I mean, the brain is sort of equally big, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But what don't you know?
1: I think I just don't know a lot about, um, no, I know know a lot about politics and I do do know a fair amount of history. I just don't know, I guess, whatever you would learn in school, whatever gets you a doctorate or something. I don't have that. I don't know what that is. Yeah. I don't have any of that. Okay. I really don't know anything like that.
0: You're Asian. I should. Yeah, I know.
1: I really don't know. Maybe I have the aptitude for it, but it's never been tested. Every
0: time you have to do something here, you have to sort of tick a box, Caucasian, Asian, Mm African-American, and so forth. Mm -hmm. We don't do that in Sweden. It would be super inappropriate. Right. But Americans do. Why do you do it?
1: Yeah, I think it's like a demographic thing. I think they want to sort of understand... I, in generally, when I look at sort of racially specific kinds of questionnaires, those things, I think it's that they're trying to judge how much money they're putting into something that if, they, that if it's uh, not the more powerfully economic group that is in generally Caucasians, then they may pay less attention to it. You know, that it's like, who is this opinion coming from? And they want to sort of judge the opinion by how much money you make. And that is sort of directly in correlation to what your racial identity is.
0: Is that sort of feeding a racist system?
1: Yes. (laughs) Yes, it is. (laughs) But it's also kind of a backwards way of addressing multiculturalism. You know, it's like more of a, a tracking device than it is anything that I think really helps society. It's so that the government can know where and who is affected by what they're doing, I think.
0: But during your lifetime, by the way, you are somewhere around 50, right? No, 40, sorry. 46. 46, I'm sorry.
1: It's close close to 50. Well. It's almost 50.
0: Well. (laughs) but, but, But anyway, during your lifetime, would you say that America is, in general, would you say that it's less racist now than it was when you grew up?
1: I think America is more aware of its racism than it was when I grew up. I think when I grew up, that racism was um, really just kind of reserved for this idea that it was somehow dealt with, that we had lived in a sort of a post-racial society, which is not true at all. Now, I think the reason why we're seeing so much racism, especially when it comes to black people and law enforcement, is because we finally have a way to make the world a witness, that is, with cell phones and just that everybody's able to document what they've been through. So I think... The country, America, has always been a racist country, but we've never been aware of the extent of the racism until we were able to actually document ourselves.
0: Is there a different racism with people of Asian descent?
1: Yes, the differences in racism have a lot to do with the way that we're perceived by the dominant culture, which is white culture, and also the path of our own immigration here. So we look at the path of African Americans. It's a very violent consequence that brought them here. They were not brought over. It was not like the same way that Latinos were coming here and not the same way as Asians were coming here. So it's a different consequence. So it's a, I think that we've absorbed history as a culture and tend to treat the different kinds of civil rights movements as a consequence of their context historically.
0: Will you live to see a non-racist America?
1: Oh, I'd love to see that. I'd love to live to witness that. I think it's complicated, but I think it would be really joyous. I would love to think that we're not that far from that. So Why is that? Yes, I think that there's so much of an urgency to fix the world, especially with social media, that there's a, a need to make things right, that injustice actually is like the main enemy of all people who sort of want to be on social media and their definition of, of of injustice. And so there's an urgency to solve it now that has never really existed before.
0: How about homophobia? Do you think that will be exterminated?
1: Yes, I would love to see that. I think that's a really good An exciting journey too to see the gay civil rights movement move into an arena where we have the Supreme Court siding with us here, you know, with the legalization of gay marriage and the addition to the Constitution to protect gay rights. I think that's really valuable. So I'm seeing definite steps towards that. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care.
0: Did anyone raise the question about perhaps instead of legalization, gay marriage to ban straight marriage?
1: I think that's definitely been an argument, too. Like people say that marriage in itself is an antiquated idea, which it might be. I mean, I think the more important issue is that whatever it is, we're just trying to find equality in that. So whatever is equalizing is Mm. the best.
0: Perhaps banning stuff is bad f- Maybe. for the world as well.
1: I guess. But I don't think I'm banning... I think banning the Confederate flag is a pretty good idea. It you might know? Be, yeah. I think that's positive. So some bans might be valuable and important.
0: Usage of hard drugs?
1: I think all drugs should be decriminalized. It, I think that, that that's my take on it. I mean, I, I feel that drugs and the illicit procurement of them is part of the problem with society, one of the problems. And so I, I often talk about, I think, that pot should be legalized. That's the one country where I really get argument about that is Sweden. The Sweden does not like marijuana.
0: I guess
1: so. <laughs> They're very like, oh, that's a drug. Yeah, that's, that's a drug. And, I mean, I went to Stockholm and I was asking for pot but i was i was asking for drugs and they're like oh what do you want do you want g do you want k do you want, want GHB do you want coke do you want acid do you want Mali? and i'm like oh no i just want pot and they're like oh no <laughs> no but that, that's drugs like that's really drugs so i i don't know <laughs> i think pot should be legal but it's it's something that is a very controversial idea
0: yeah well not here right not in california or
1: it is and it isn't. You know, I think in general in America, there's people who have problems with it. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people in prison who have marijuana offenses, that it's an equal, you know, I think if you're middle class, and that you have marijuana offenses, you can sort of get out of it, and it doesn't put you in prison. But if you're from um, a poor background, it's it definitely is something that affects you. So, you see a lot of people in prison with marijuana offenses that are actually really not violent. I don't think marijuana is a drug that should be criminalized. It's just not something that makes people violent, okay. I think.
0: Yeah. Okay, so you wanted to get into stand-up comedy and you sort of pursued that yes. early on. Yes. And it sort of took off quite fast as well, right?
1: Yeah, I think that was lucky and good. And also I worked really hard because I really enjoyed it. And I also didn't want to become a kid again. So I was very determined to just become financially independent and an adult really fast.
0: I was discussing this with my wife yesterday, that it feels like you were sort of a trailblazer in a way, because had there been any other famous uh, Asian comedians here before you?
1: I don't think so. I I mean, I think that there had been, there was a guy named Johnny Yoon, who was... South Korean guy he a of him. Um he was very he was like very much uh sort of a tonight show guy in the 70s so he was f- I think friends with Johnny Carson so he was on a lot and it was always very exciting to see him but I don't really have any um I don't remember anybody else at that time
0: So you were I
1: think I was the first Yeah yeah I think I was the first
0: Are you proud of that fact
1: Oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. for sure yeah it's great it's exciting because I didn't even know that i could have an effect on history and i really have so it's it's really wonderful
0: yeah that's fantastic yeah does that make it easier to go up in the morning
1: yeah Yeah, for sure (laughs) it's good yeah because i already accomplished it so i sort of don't i don't really don't have to do anything else anymore (laughs) i'm fine
0: okay so you you truly feel like that yeah i do that sounds fantastic you you must be a really positive person
1: i am positive. I try to be. But then again, you know, it's it's always very much, it's a struggle if you, ser- you sort of look at the way that show business is, and you're always sort of facing rejection of some kind. So you have to kind of remain positive, even though it's tough.
0: Yeah, but I mean, in my life, I would say that of all the ideas and all the projects I've sort of embarked on, it's been like, perhaps 90 to 10 what failed. I mean, most stuff that I've done has been failures.
1: Yeah, me too. Like, as artistically, you yeah. know, you try to accomplish things, and then, you, you know, but it's like, I think you're judged by the way that you deal with failure and also the way that you can turn failure around. I think failure is just a stage in development. You know, it's just a, a, another step towards what you really, the larger goal is, so.
0: But do you ever bomb still?
1: Yeah, Totally. And I, you know, definitely have made big mistakes in my career over time, but then those failures have added up to a success because I still continued to pursue it, you know, whatever that was, like whatever my artistic endeavors are, I I still kept going forward. So it's all good.
0: Have you been in doubt that this is what you're supposed to do?
1: Yeah, yeah. I definitely know that this is what I, I'm I'm very secure in that.
0: But when did you doubt that? the last time or
1: oh I doubt all the time because I take a lot of chances you know okay. and I take a lot of risks and I also sometimes don't care about what the profession is which is the comedy is the main point is to make people laugh and sometimes I put that aside in order to make a point point about what I'm thinking and that necessarily isn't the right approach. It's an honest approach, but it's not the right one. You always have to remember what your job actually is. So, I have to just remember I'm just an entertainer and I have to just enjoy that. But there's a lot of freedom in that because then if I say something really offensive, it doesn't matter because I'm just an entertainer. It doesn't have the same kind of seriousness as it would if, you know, if it was just a political point of view, you know, because it all can be a joke. The the noble art of comedy is to make people feel better about their lives and so you always just try to fulfill that first
0: but is there like if there is something that you feel is super important i mean do you work on it until it's funny then
1: yeah you try to yeah. you try to and you try to find a way to talk about it and you try to find a way to deal with people who don't agree with you so, and that can be very tough in America because people get really angry because it 's such a divided country for so many reasons, politically like when I was talking about in like 2003 and 2004, I was really talking about the Bush administration, and I was very critical of it, very angry about it i didn't like it, and I didn't, I didn't like going to war, and I didn't like you know this reaction to 9 eleven that was going to war, which was not the right choice, I thought, and so that was a really. Very, very strong position to have then because there was a really – a strong time of real absurd kind of patriotism after around 9/11. the – Yeah, after yeah. 9-11 and around the Bush administration. Yeah. Like it's sort of it, – it, it did – the patriotism did serve its purpose, but it didn't justify us going to war. So that was my criticism about it. And so I got a lot of – I had a lot of problems about that. Like people were really upset. But then the entire world started to realize that the Bush administration was terrible, <laughs> And then everything kind of came back around, so it's uh that you you when you are sort of a forward thinker, you can sort of come up with things maybe ahead of the times and then people get mad
0: who do you think going to win the next election
1: i don't know. I like Bernie Sanders, I like Hillary Clinton. I actually know Hillary Clinton socially, which is really weird she's great she 's really great, yeah. and she knows what it 's like to be president she 's done it, so I think she 's very much a viable candidate, as is Bernie Sanders, who's very earnest and and really interesting, and I think a good thinker. So we'll see.
0: Could you elevator pitch Bernie Sanders for me? What's good with him?
1: He is really about equalizing society and that's acknowledging the racism that we are seeing now, especially as it relates to the police and black people. He's also really trying to get people to understand the difference in the way that we are taxed, the tax brackets that we're in, how much more expensive it is to be an American if you are poor or middle class than it is if you are very, very rich. Mm. So he's trying to expose the inequality in the way that we pay our taxes, in the way that we're treated by the government. And I love that approach to this office, which is – really about equalizing things. I think Obama's done a great job. I I worked on his campaign when he became president. So I am aware of some of the machinations behind what it takes to become the president. I think Bernie Sanders is a little bit too honest in a lot of ways, because he's really telling the truth about what America has been doing all these years. And I think that might be scary to other people in office who would mostly probably support him if, if he wasn't sort of exposing everything.
0: Okay. Does he have a chance?
1: I think if it's more couched in some kind of establishment, that's why I think he would be good with Hillary Clinton because she is both part of the establishment and somebody that's really fighting for equality and has been for a long time.
0: I'm sorry that I I sort of pulled you into politics. I was trying, I was going to go into more of of the stand-up comedy world. Mm -hmm. You started out early on and so forth. And then at some point you moved to LA. Yes. Why?
1: I wanted to do um, comedy on television at that time. This is the very early nineties. There was a lot of stand-up comedy on American television. So you had MTV running it and Fox at that time, which was a new network. And then you, you, you had like all these different television specials on cable that were starting. So I wanted to be part of that. And I got work, right away with that. And then also I started to get deals to do my own television show, which became uh, eventually All-American Girl in 1994. So that sort of brought me here more permanently. But I was also always on the road too and working. So I just wanted to make LA my home base so I could do more television comedy and then work on my deals and my TV show and also go on the road from here.
0: At the same time... As you did this, did you go through a hard time personally?
1: Oh, well, when I was doing All-American Girl, it was very difficult because part of the problem was that they always thought that I was too fat to play the role of myself. So then I was like trying to lose weight, but I couldn't really do it, and I, I was doing it wrong, and I ended up getting very sick. And then the show was eventually canceled because it was not really representative of my comedy because I was a much more edgy comedian, but they wanted to have more diversity in TV where there was no diversity at that time. So it was a difficult time to actually try to do a show that had an all-Asian cast. And now, you know, it's taken 20 years, which is a show now on TV called Fresh Off the Boat, which I'm really excited about and proud of. And then another show coming up called uh, Dr. Ken, which is another Asian-American family show. And these are my friends' shows in you know, this is exciting because now we're finally able to see more Asian people on TV.
0: And after that, after All American Girl, I mean, what did you take from that?
1: Well, I I felt like it was a huge failure and it was very depressing. And then I was on the road as a comedian all the time. But then in in doing comedy, I found a lot of support, you know, like I found that I could talk about my experience and talk about what happened to me in television and really have an audience that was excited to hear it. And so through that, Difficult experience. Through that initial failure, I built a much bigger success as a stand up comedian. So I really had something to talk about. I really had some suffering to address. I think that's what comedy is most genius at when you can address suffering in your life and really try to find a way through it and through coping with it. So that's something great to share with other people. So that's where I found my true voice as a comic.
0: Yeah. And finding your true voice, is that sort of, because I've dabbled in the art of a stand-up comedy myself, and what I tend to think about my material is that it feels too written. I mean, I could sort of give it to anyone, Mm -hmm. and they could perform it and perhaps get a laughter. Mm -hmm. It doesn't resonate with myself. Mm. How do you get to that point? I
1: think it takes a long time, actually. It takes many tries to sort of figure out what voice is authentic to you and what is your message. You know, like, because it's hard to really understand what your message is as a comedian until you do it for, I think, at least a decade. You gotta do it for like 10 years and then you kind of figure it out takes a while.
0: Yeah, 10 years is a lot of time.
1: It took me about 10 years yeah. to figure it out, to really understand what it was that I was supposed to do. And you're still not perfect. No, no, no. But it's always uh, I'm willing to risk that imperfection. And I'm really not a perfectionist, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> it doesn't bother me. Like, I just keep going. And uh, I just want to try different things. And I try to do things that are true to me and and. What would be entertaining i I, I want to be different though are you sober? no, I'm not sober okay no, I was sober for a long time, and then I didn't really feel so great about it. you know I didn't really feel like, oh i don't know if this is what I want or what I need I'm not sure, and then when I went back to drinking and and smoking pot and which is sort of pretty benign, I think it didn't really destroy my life. My problem with drugs and alcohol had a little bit more to do with anorexia and bulimia, which was mostly my issues during All-American Girl because I was forced to diet and try to be thinner and I couldn't really handle that. And so I was often turning to drugs and alcohol so I wouldn't eat. And so... After I was sober for a long time that the, and then just able to sort of eat whatever, I kind of, I don't know, everything sort of equalized. was normal. So I'm not sure. I think sobriety helps people. I think it probably would help me at some point. It did help me when I was, but I don't know what it would do for me now.
0: But how, how long did you stay sober for?
1: About 10 years. Okay. Everything's in 10 years. That's Increments. a long time. It's a long time.
0: In the stand-up comedy world, I mean, you are... At least from my perspective, you are one of America's most successful comedians. Yes. Is that true? Yes. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> That's fantastic.
1: It's great. Thank you. Is there a hierarchy?
0: <laughs> I, I can't say that word.
1: Hierarchy? In, yes. Yes, there is. There a uh, hi- hierarchy in comedy that it's generational. It's also fueled by our media outlets. Like who has a show? Who's got a show? they're generally out in front more but I've been around for long enough and I'm one of the rare exceptions in the comedic world where both comedians like me and audiences like me so it's a kind of it's a good place to be and I'm, I'm very well respected within comedy and also kind of looked at as um, sort of a mom to everyone I'm everybody's mother which is a nice thing too
0: because you then you are at the top, sort of. Yes. You're uh, always headlining. Yes. Where and when do you try material?
1: Oh, all the time. That's oh. why I bomb all the time. Okay. Because, like, I well, well, like, I'll take you know, I'll do an hour or show, and then I'll usually spend a little bit of that time really trying to figure something out for myself, which will be new and untested. Pretty much every show, I'll do something new. And that's where people would be like, "What? What is that? Like, that doesn't mean." He says, <laughs> "Like, this is not." And then you have to kind of go back to sort of what they know you as, or what you sort of tried before. Yeah. But that's where I, you know, I I would do poorly, but it would only be for a few minutes. So I try something out.
0: So now that you are about to go on tour, mm-hmm. will there be new material every night? Yes.
1: Yes, because oh. there's always has to be, because something always happens every day. And also the way that we like view the news now, there's stuff that happens minute to minute that you just got to be conscious of and sort of, because everybody is, because everybody's looking at Facebook and, and seeing the story scroll. So there's this unbelievable amount of information that people have now that didn't have that before. So now you have to be very conscious of what's happening.
0: I hope to catch you. Yes. On the road. Please come. Would you like to recommend something?
1: I like to put brown rice in tom kaga soup. It's a Thai soup. But to me, it's like a curry. It's so delicious. So I put brown rice. I would suggest that to anybody. Okay. It's a good one.
0: Yeah. Do you have that for breakfast?
1: No, no, no. That's more of a dinner thing. Yeah. Or maybe lunch. Thai food in Los Angeles is very good. Okay. It's So I if you're uh, looking for that here. I don't know if there's a Swedish restaurant here.
0: I'm not sure either, but if there was, you wouldn't want to try it. Well, anyway. oh,
1: I love I love all Nordic kind of cuisine. Okay. So, all right. you know, you like the uh, the pickled herring and so. Well, forth? then I would I like I like the sort of Rene Redzepi, yeah, Noma, yeah. Copenhagen yeah, yeah, kind yeah. of Nordic cuisine. Oh, but I also like I do like a pick I like a I'll take a roll mop. Okay. I like that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but maybe if you would pick one restaurant to tip us about in uh, Los Angeles, then.
1: I would go to Kanghodong Bekjong. Kanghodong Jong. It's in Koreatown. It's this guy who is a Korean comedian who was disgraced because of a tax evasion scandal. So he was forced to come to America and open a restaurant. It's called Kangol-dong Baekjeong. It is literally the best Korean restaurant in the entire world. Ah, fantastic. So if you like um, barbecue, if you like meat, if you like really fresh, beautiful flavors, it's really, really good. And he has a lot to live up to because he was disgraced because of this tax evasion scandal in Korea. He was really the greatest star in Korea and now had to come here and make a restaurant.
0: Who do you think I should interview on my podcast?
1: I think you should interview Dr. Ken Jong. He is a comedian and he is uh, well known for his character in The Hangover. He's a really funny guy and he has. He was an, in community
0: as well. He's right? in
1: community, yes. Yeah. He's really great and he's an actual medical doctor and he has a new show called Dr. Ken that's starting that I mentioned before. It's the second, no, the third Asian American family TV show ever on ABC. So it's going to start in the fall.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time.
1: Of course. Thank you.
0: That's Margaret Cho, and she's going out on her There's No I in Team, but there's a Cho in Psycho tour as of right now and uh, all throughout the fall and winter. So make sure to check out margaretcho.com to see when she comes to your town. She actually is on her way to Europe. Look forward to that. She'll be in Stockholm on December 6th. See you there. And speaking of seeing, don't miss Varvet on Facebook and Instagram. Search for Varvet International on Facebook and on Instagram where Varvet Pod. Varvet is made by me, Christopher Triumph, and I have some help from uh, Malin Triumph and, of course, my editor, Lovisa Olsson. We're distributed by Acast. Try their app. It's free. Talk to you in two weeks. Bye-bye.